Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Open your Bibles to Colossians 1. You guys excited to begin to work through the book of Colossians together? Okay. We're going to begin in verse 1, so read along with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens. We read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Amen? When we uh, begin to outline this series, uh, Mike did most of that work, and uh, we assigned Colossians 1, 1 through 14 for the first week. Uh, and then we talked more, and on Tuesday, we're like, 1, 1 through 8. And then on Friday, I was like, 1, 1 through 2. <laughs> so there are 100 verses in Colossians. You guys want to do some math with me? No, we'll, we'll, we'll speed up, we'll speed up. But it's not going to be a, a, uh, a run to catch a train. It's going to be a bit more leisurely, <laughs> I think. We'll find out. Um, what I want to do this morning is talk a little bit about the biblical and theological framework that undergirds uh, the book or the letter to the Colossians. Um, when, you, when you read a letter and uh, you have correspondence, usually there's a back and forth, but the letters we have in the Bible are only one direction. They're what we call occasional letters. That is, we don't always know what it was that the Colossians or their emissaries said to Paul. And also, there's a number of shared assumptions between Paul and the Colossian Christians. Um, so I do want to talk about these first two verses, but I also want to do some background, some theological and, and biblical context. Is that okay with you guys? All right. I'm going to begin with a story. Uh, a few years back, I wanted to get my wife a birthday present. I'm an awful gift giver. I want to be a good one. I just am not good at it. But I thought I had a good idea. I was going to go to a spa and get her like a, a gift card for a spa. Does that sound like a good? <laughs> Somebody like, to me it does. Somebody like, nope. So I go to a spa. I walk in, walk up to the counter. There's a lady behind it. And I was like, hey, I'd like to get something for my wife here. I think she you know, really, really could use it. And the lady's like, excuse me? I'm like, what? She's like annoyed with me. And I was like, I would like to get something for my wife. Can we do that? And she's like, I mean, I guess. How do you know you don't need something? Are you confused? I was like, I'm 100% fine. I'd like to buy a gift card. And she was like, we don't sell gift cards. So I was like, do you have pamphlets? She's like, yeah, I got pamphlets. So I take some pamphlets, I go out to my car, and I realize I'm not in a spa, I'm in a cosmetic surgery place. <laughs> and I was like, you know, she needs this, I don't need it. <laughs> I didn't make that up, that's a real thing that I did. And, and the point, is, is pretty self-evident. <laughs> uh, 
knowing where you are matters. <laughs> it really, really does matter. Knowing where you are, your location, matters a lot. Um, as believers, uh, we experience occasional frustration, just occasional, right? Occasional an- annoyance. We experience, I think, a fair amount of uh, anger and feeling alone and uh, various types of tragedy. And I think it is true that Christians will experience some of those things. I also think it's true that many Christians experience more of those things than they need to because they have forgotten where their home is. Because knowing where your home is is a great source of hope that carries you through everything that's happening right now in your life. Colossians, I believe, is very much about reorienting the minds of the Christian believers at Colossae and the Christian believers in the South Bay to remember where their home is, to remember what their greatest hope is, to remember who is the greatest, and then to live their lives in light of those things. I want to talk about like three houses as a metaphor for understanding What's happening in Colossians? The first is the house that Adam built. Did Adam build a good house? Weird. I said, did Adam build a good house? No one responded, but one guy laughed. (laughs) Presuming he's implying no. Did Adam build a good house? No, it's a decaying house. It's a house that's condemned to be destroyed. It's got black mold in it. Adam got black mold in the house, and everyone who's in Adam's house suffers from that black mold. Uh, What happened? Uh, The house that I'm talking about is a metaphor. The story of Adam and Eve isn't a metaphor. God created Adam and Eve, and they bore his image. Unlike anything else in creation, they represented God. And God told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth, which meant to create more order. God had made a beautiful creation, and Adam and Eve, as God's representatives, were going to rule over that creation and bring more good order to it. But Adam and Eve chose their own way. They rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They wanted to consider themselves God. They broke his law. And in doing so, they brought sin and death into the world. We know, we know that Adam's house is broken. We know it. I have small children, and I do the best I can to to open their eyes to the brokenness of Adam's house in small measures as they grow older. Do you tell your kids every awful thing that happens in the world immediately? You do it slowly over time, and kids come to reckon with the evil that's in the world, the evil that's out in the world, and very importantly, the evil that is in their own hearts. Um, My son is a professional at getting specks of things in his eye. Unbelievably good at it. A windless day outside. And he hits the floor like a grown man just punched him in the chest, just drops on the ground. And he says, <laughs> he says, I hate that this is happening. This is so awful. I can't believe, why is this happening to me? I don't want this to happen. <laughs> Some people, we have moments where we're like, yeah, I get that, I feel that. <laughs> like he's realizing that The world's not as it should be. It's just like one small example. We all have a million ways that we can identify that the world is not the way that it should be, that the house that Adam built is doomed to decay, and that we must not stay in that house. 
Because anyone who stays there is going to die. And as we'll learn later, will be the subject of God's wrath. So we know this from our own experience, but I want to point you to what the Bible says, what the Bible says about uh, sin um, and the state of the world. In Romans, Paul says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, that's an important word, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands God, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And just real quickly, there's a moment here where most of us want to go, but I do. Their throat is an open grave, they use the tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the state of those who are in Adam's house. James gives us more detail, the progressive nature of sin. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sin, our own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. So the world is broken. Things are not well. There is uh, sin endemic to, to humankind. We see it in other people. We see it in institutions. We should see it in our own heart. And that is the crisis that humankind is in. It's the problem. There's another house, uh, Caesar's house. Have you heard of Caesar? It's a couple of you. Just a few people have heard of Caesar. Little Caesar, Caesar salad. <laughs> Who's Caesar? Caesar was, uh, was the ruler of what empire? Come on, help me out. I'm so glad that there was a unanimous Roman there. The Roman Empire. Uh, lots of empires, lots of successful empires. I can't think of anything, at least in the Western world, quite like the Roman Empire. How long has America been around? About 250 years, right? We're hoping for many more years, 250 years. Uh, Rome established itself and maintained power for about a thousand years. That's a really long time. Some people extend it even, even beyond that, but at, at minimum, a thousand years. And Rome, the Roman Empire, was a way for people to bring order to the world that was filled with chaos and wickedness and sin and all kinds of other problems. And there were all kinds of ways that they did this. One was they established peace across huge swaths of geographical territory. Now, when you look back on the Roman Empire, you might say, well, it didn't seem very peaceful. <laughs> wasn't peaceful on the edges. Wasn't peaceful on the battlefield. Uh, wasn't necessarily peaceful outside of Rome. But if you lived inside Rome, your experience of human violence and your threat of human violence was far lower than it would be outside the boundaries of Rome. You experience more peace more often than many, many, many other hundreds of thousands of people in other parts of the world. Caesar brought a certain kind of peace. The Romans built roads. Anybody ever seen a Roman road? I've walked on Roman roads that are in better shape than the street I live on. <laughs> they literally last. They made them well. Roman roads connected the world. It made it small. It took something that was a, like, a life-threatening, life-endangering thing, long-distance travel, and made it possible. You could go to Spain from Syria 
and like have more than an 80% chance of living. <laughs> Didn't used to be the case. Made the world small. Um, also things like uh, production and manufacturing. Rome turned uh, Spain essentially into a giant olive farm. So everyone in the empire <laughs> could have olives and olive oil. They had law to deal with disputes that we still use some of their, their uh, legal innovations today. Rome brought a certain type of order. It was a house for people to live in. They would try and move out of Adam's house and they would move into Caesar's house because if you were a fan of Rome, if you were a Roman citizen, if you experienced the various goods that Rome gave to you, you could think Caesar has built a good house. Anybody ever seen the Colosseum? You've seen pictures of it at least, right? And the Colosseum to us is like an old broken down ruin. Like it's impressive, but come on, right? That's what ruins do, right? They, they like rob things of their dignity. The Colosseum is not a good picture of what it was at the time. It would have been painted. It would have been adorned and well furnished. It's possible they had like glass windows. Like the Colosseum would have been really, really impressive. Would have been really, really amazing to see. I, I just want us for a moment to say there were probably lots and lots and lots of people that saw Rome as the answer to the question of how we deal with our crises, how we deal with our wickedness, how we deal with our disorder. You following me? And in fact people would write inscriptions dedicated to Caesar. And they would say Caesar, and usually it was Caesar Augustus, has done so much good for the people of the Roman Empire that no one could ever do as much good as he did. They would call him Savior, using the same word we use for Jesus. And they would also say the news about him is the gospel, which is the same word we use for gospel. You still following me? You still with me? I still have you? Okay. The problem is, Adam's house and Caesar's house are the same house with different names. If you've left Adam's house to go to Caesar's house, you've found some source of order and protection that maybe you felt like you didn't have before, if you go to Caesar's house, you are actually still in Adam's house. How do we know? Well, how do I know Caesar's house was not successful in solving the basic problems that human beings have? For one, the Roman Empire is gone. It has no opportunity or chance to actually help human beings. It's been gone for a really, really long time. There is no one alive today whose life has been given order because of Caesar. You following me? Another problem is Caesar's house does not address the actual problem that human beings have. It addresses some of the symptoms. It doesn't address the actual root problem. Is a lack of peace the main problem we have as human beings? Is it a real problem? Is it the main problem? No. The point I'm trying to make is this. The real problem, and I've already said it, the real human being problem is this. We have not obeyed God. The greatest lack of peace we have is not between each other. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. It's between us and God. Paul says it. We read it in the Psalms. It's all over the New Testament. The main problem we have is what? Sin. If you're new today, you're visiting us, I know this seems a little intense, but it's true. If you're here today looking for anything other than salvation found through the name of Jesus, 
I'm not gonna give it to you. I wanna give you the real thing you need. You need to be saved from your own sin. I think in the time of the Colossians, Caesar's house made a lot of sense. Caesar's answer to the human problem made a lot of sense to a lot of people. It obviously does not for us today, but there are many houses with many names that give us answers that are not sufficient. There are places where we want to live, metaphorically, that we think will solve our problems. All kinds of various pseudo-religious or philosophies that we think are going to answer our problems. They will not. There's only one name under heaven and earth in which you might be saved, and that name is what? So, there's a new house, and there's a new gospel. Remember, over and over again, you could read inscriptions saying the gospel of, and it would be Caesar Augustus. And now there is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a different sort of gospel. It takes a different sort of shape. It answers the actual problem. And Paul, in the fifth verse of Colossians, says this. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. A bunch of ways you could translate that. It could be the true word of the gospel or the true message of the gospel. He's saying, you've heard of gospels before. I have the actual one that is actually good news. Paul, Paul uh, cares a great deal about conveying to the Colossians what it means to be saved, how to be saved. However, a lot of that is assumed in Colossians. There are various places we can go to in Colossians to understand more about the gospel, but the most succinct, helpful places that we can go to to understand what the gospel is are actually, in my opinion, in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. And I want to read them to you. And if you're new, if you don't know Jesus yet, I want you to, I want you to follow along here. And, and if you're not new and you don't have these bookmarked in your Bible, I don't want to tell you to mark in your Bible. I'm just saying these are good places to have access to quickly. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul is saying the gospel is something that happened. It's news about something that happened. It's not advice for your life, although the Bible gives lots of advice. It's not a secret about how to, you know, be your best or be your best to you. The gospel is essentially news about something that has already happened. And, and then in Romans, Romans 3, and again, if you'd like to bookmark that in your Bible, I'm not going to stop you. Romans 3, 21. Paul dives more into the theological content of the gospel. He tells us more about how it actually works. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. This is important. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard Zach preach on the concept of propitiation. The idea is that Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. There was none left for anyone who might call on the name of Jesus. 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And just leave that last uh, screen up for a second. What Paul is saying is sinners deserve destruction. They deserve the wrath of God. He's saying that sinners can't escape the wrath of God except in that God sent his son Jesus who lived a perfect life, committed no sin, and went to a cross. And on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out on him so that all who might call on him can have his righteousness and not suffer the wrath of God. It's a way that Jesus rescues us from coming destruction. Are you still with me? Okay, there's this word faith. We hear it all the time. People are named faith. It's in a lot of songs. There was a uh, missionary that was doing work in the Outer Hebrides. It's like the very, very, very north of the United Kingdom. And he was working with the native languages there, and he's trying to translate the word faith. What does faith mean? What is the best word to translate the Greek word for faith? And he found a, a native word that meant to lean your entire weight on. I think that's a really good picture of faith. I uh, took my family camping recently. Love camping, lots of fun. Big fan of camping. And we wanted to go on a hike. Uh, and you know those camping hikes where you're like, there's like a stream and big rocks that you're jumping from one rock to the next? You know what I'm talking about? If you're a kid, it's exciting. If you're a parent, <laughs> I don't think the other parents would like, I, I want to get my kid like a helmet, knee pads, elbow pads. They're like, Andrew, you got to chill. My son, he's, he's like five or six. I should know his exact age at the point. Um, he's young. He wants to go on this hike. And I'm like, son, you're not ready. And like the group's headed off. I'm like, let's just take the flat, safe dirt path. You're not ready. He's like, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. Other people are now, you know, 100 feet down. And finally, I just relent. I say, okay, all right, fine, let's go. And my son experienced zero fear or danger during the entire walk. And here's why. He would just jump around. He's just a stick figure with kneecap, like jump like from rock to rock to rock. And multiple times he would make a leap with no place to land. And I would just catch him in midair. And I realized he has no plan. He also feels no sense of danger. He trusts me 100%. Do you know what I mean? Absolute faith in me leans his entire weight on me, literally. I think that's what true faith looks like. It's not like intellectual agreement. I think that's part of it. It's not blindly believing in something that you want to be true. It's leaning your entire weight on something because you know only that thing can actually save you. Amen? So, Paul is in prison. Can we just jump back to Paul real quickly? He's in prison. I think he's probably at the end of his life. There's some disagreement over when exactly he wrote this letter, but he probably, I think, wrote it in a prison in Rome towards the end of his life. And he's in prison because of his missionary work. Paul was an aggressive and active missionary. He went on three different missionary journeys. And at the end of his third one, he's back in, uh, in Israel, in that area, and he's in prison, and there's a series of trials. And throughout that series of trials, he eventually invokes his Roman citizenship. He actually uses Rome to get to 
Rome the city, the center of the known world, so that he can do missionary work in Rome. And what I want us to understand is, um, although Paul is in Caesar's prison, he's not in Caesar's house. So he's physically in Rome, in a prison, but he knows that that is not his home. So he can persist through any kind of suffering or any kind of tragedy, any kind of inconvenience, because he knows wherever he is, that is not his home. Then he writes a letter to the Colossians. And uh, Colossae was not a very important city, not a very big city, not particularly culturally significant, not very wealthy, not uh, placed in a location geographically that mattered a great deal. In fact, uh, many commentators note that Paul wrote one of his most important letters to one of the least important cities <laughs> in the Roman Empire. He also doesn't know the Colossians. Sometimes uh, we read letters that Paul writes to people who he pastored, who he spent time with, who he met personally, but that's not the case for Colossians. Paul did ministry in Ephesus, and in Ephesus, a guy named Epaphras comes to faith, and then Epaphras goes out to most of Asia Minor, and Epaphras preaches the gospel in Colossae, and people come to faith in Colossae because of Epaphras' teaching. Paul doesn't even know the Colossians. Paul writes them because they are ready to make the mistake that so many of us make, that the world we detect with our senses is the most real thing. They go to Colossae, they live there, they, they have houses there or whatever, they eat food there, they go to the marketplace, they have friends and they have families. Colossae is very real to them. For those of you who live here in the South Bay, really, does it feel real to you? It's real, right? You're reminded of the place that you live by the things you see and hear and taste and touch. It feels like the place you live. And Paul's concern is, Paul's concern is they might forget that even though they exist in Colossae, that Colossae is not their home. Even though you might exist here in the South Bay or the surrounding area, you might own a house, like a paying mortgage here. <laughs> this place is still not your most permanent, most real home. So then this is what Paul does. Paul paints perhaps the most sweeping, magnificent, profound picture of Jesus in the entire New Testament. It's immense and feels edgeless and it's cosmic. It's like all throughout outer space. And then he draws this absurdly straight line between Jesus, the Lord of all of outer space, to just like regular human daily life. It's a very straight line. He does it in less than 100 verses. Really, really, really quick. And so now I want to go back to our first few verses here. And I want us to see what he says in verse 2. Paul says, To the saints and faithful brothers, and here we go, in Christ at Colossae. I think a lot of what he does in Colossians kind of sits, hangs, on what he says here. Can I teach you just a little bit of Greek? Is that okay? Greek's really hard, so I want you to pay attention. The, the Greek word for our English word in is in. 
You can write that down if you need to. As I said, Greek's very hard. And that Greek word appears before Christ and Colossae, because it can also be translated at. So like a more literal translation would be the, the believers, the saints in Christ, in Colossae. Paul's saying, you are in a sense in both places at once. He's what scholars uh, call uh, using sphere language. Um, he's saying, even though you're walking around Colossae, even though you're walking around Hermosa or Torrance or Gardena or Lamita or wherever you live, and you're experiencing that city, you are more permanently, permanently and more importantly in Christ. You are not primarily a South Bayan <laughs> or whatever. You're primarily a Christian. Fundamentally, your identity is in Christ himself. He is where you live. So here's what happened to me as I was reading Colossians over the last couple of weeks. Have you ever read a passage of the Bible after a long time having not read it and it has totally new life for you? This is a very good response. I'm glad that that's happened to you. I grew up as a Christian. You know, I, I read the Bible you know, as a kid. Maybe not with as uh, careful eyes as I do now. And in between now and the last time I recall really sitting down with Colossians, I've had like a decade of, uh, of like theological training. Um, and then so I, I read it over the course of the last few weeks and it really, really like messed me up. Like it kind of blew my mind. And here's what I mean. Um, there's this weird, absurd debate in scholarship uh, uh, where people are like, oh yeah, did the early Christians think that Jesus was God? And that sounds absurd to you, and that's because it is absurd. The early Christians did think Jesus was God. And I'm like, I wish I had been like, hey, uh, other academics, have you read Colossians? Because it kind of seems like, like they thought he was God. <laughs> like in a completely unmitigated, unprecedented, uh, scandalous way. It seems like that's what Paul thought. Um, like, I just imagine Paul goes to Colossae, and I know he, he, he didn't, but like, imagine he goes there, or, or I really, t to any, any uh, Greco-Roman town, and he sees all the people walking around, and he hears all these great things about Caesar. <laughs> like, yeah, Caesar built this place. It's a really nice place. Roads are really great. The economy's good because of Caesar. He protects us. Caesar's really, really great. And Paul's like, Caesar, yeah. Uh, have you guys heard of Jesus? <laughs> Like, yeah, Caesar, the emperor, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. <laughs> he, he's the one who uh, created everything on heaven and earth, you know, thrones and dominions, visible and invisible. He's the one who, like, what else is great about Jesus? Oh, he created all things. And, and all things were created for him. That means he made you for him. He's the preeminent one, first in all things, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of those risen from the dead. Paul is painting a magnificently large picture of Jesus. And a pause, that's, first, that's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we agreed, because it's such a great passage, and I've gotten many great passages, that Mike gets to preach that one. I can see him in the back. And he's like, you're sitting on these verses a little long, Andrew. Just trying to tell you about Jesus, guys. Wouldn't that be if I walk up and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start with 115. No. Be ready. Be ready for that passage. Amen? Okay, point is this. Paul is meeting them where they live in their lives. And he's saying, 
Christ is supreme. What is he first in? Everything. What did he make? Everything. What is everything for? Him. Christ is supreme. Do you believe that Christ is supreme? Christ is supreme, and precisely because he's supreme, and here's the absurdly short line, because Christ is supreme, he is also sufficient. Everything you need, you have in Jesus. Everything you need, you have in Jesus. And by the way, Jesus is not just a carpenter. He's the cosmic Lord of the entire universe who holds all the atoms in your body together. He's supreme, so therefore he is sufficient. The occasion of this letter is that this, uh, the Colossians, because they see Colossae around them, because they live regular life, because they cannot always detect with their eyes the spiritual realities that they believe are true, have started kind of walking back into other houses. Houses that might bear names like Gnosticism or pagan worship or angel worship or legalism, but are actually just Adam's house. Paul says things like this. I'm just going to read you a couple quick verses. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. A little bit later, he says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I'm going to read you one more. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And when I read that, you guys 100% understand what Paul's saying there? Some of you are like, nope. It's called the Colossian heresy. You can read a hundred books about the Colossian heresy. I don't recommend it. And when you're done, you won't know what it was. You'll just know that it was weird. <laughs> really hoping Mike gets that section also. <laughs> we don't 100% know. I'm not really going to get into the weeds now. We'll talk more about it at some point, I'm sure. Could be an anti-materialism. Could be a form of Jewish legalism. It could be something about worshiping the foundational elements of the earth. The word Paul uses is stoicheia, kind of like pillars. Uh, it could be all kinds of different things. We are not on for sure. The point is this. Paul's saying there are other things that you are going after now. You're not just learning about them. You're not just curious by them. But you're going back into those houses. They're taking you captive. Paul is not saying that other worldviews outside of Christianity are always wrong about everything. That's not true. He is saying only Christianity is correct about everything. So stop going after other gods. Are you weary from these last 18 months? Anybody? Has it been confusing? You're like, I don't know what to believe. There's so much data. <laughs> 
Return to Christ, who is supreme, who is sufficient, and live at his house. Hope Chapel, uh, we have a new house. We have a new house. It is built by Jesus, and he is supreme, and we should live like we believe that. Amen? We pray. Father, we thank you for the many wonderful things that you've given to us through your word. We thank you that you sovereignly uh, guided Paul as he wrote these letters, that you inspired them, that you preserved them for us, that we might have them, that we might possess in our Bibles your very word and learn. We thank you uh, for the work that your son achieved at the cross. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his righteous life before the cross. We thank you that Jesus traded places with us. Pray for those who are here who do not yet know you, that you would grant them the illumination of the eyes of their heart, that even now they would feel a desire to know you more, that you would reveal yourself to them because we know that is a gift from you. Pray you bless us as we walk through the book of Colossians that you enrich our hearts and our lives with the words that we read there. I pray that as we read Colossians, as we read about the greatness of Jesus Christ, that we become more like him. For all these things in his name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.